I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long-term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. In a study on the effects of chronic environmental overstimulation in poor communities, psychologist Sheldon Cohen studied the impact of traffic noise on children in urban environments. Results showed that those on lower floors of apartments had worse hearing and reading skills in response to the body adjusting to the noise. Another study showed that students who lived near the Los Angeles airport had higher blood pressure and difficulty with problem solving and struggled with handling distractions. We now understand the effects that our built environment can have on development, but it is equally important to understand the importance of the environments that are later used to address behavioral and mental issues that arise biologically or as a result of early developmental conditions. For example, well-designed hospitals saw a 15% improvement in patients' ability to manage pain, response to care improved by 25%, and thoughtful design is found to be able to reduce stress, aggression, fatigue, and promote more positive lifestyles. Today, according to the World Health Organization, Around 450 million people worldwide suffer from mental disorders and one in four people in the world will be affected by mental or neurological disorders at some point in their lives. How can design be leveraged to address the mental health crisis affecting society? This is Spaces Podcast where we aim to elevate the appreciation and understanding of the spaces we occupy every day.
Hello! My name is Demetrius. This is Jason. Hey guys. And you are listening to Spaces Podcast. Welcome back everyone. Thank you for joining us again. Michelle is out today. She had a last minute. We kicked her out. (laughs) Get out! (laughs) She had a last minute meeting, so uh, she's out today. And I noticed this morning, it seems to be a trend for us, uh, Jason, that Uh-oh. it's just the two of us on these just healthcare. the two of us. On these healthcare type episodes. We're the healthiest people, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> no, Michelle does her uh, bike riding now. So she's probably, oh, she does. That's yeah, right. She's probably pretty, he- pretty can I, healthy. Can I go off on like some road bikers that were in my way earlier this morning? I have no problem with road bikers being on the street. I think we should watch out for them. But yeah. they have this like insane thing where it's like they just expect you to move out of their way yeah you're gonna die like like i don't i don't understand it like there was too wide right instead of them stacking because a car's coming and by the way it's 350 in the morning yeah i can't see you you know what i mean and it's luck like luckily i can see you but if you hit me or i hit you yeah you lose yeah it's like so i'm watching for you but you guys have to be courteous too i mean like come on you know it's not I don't know. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> so Michelle usually goes on trails, though. I know yeah, that. Which yeah. and I and I would like to ride a road bike more because it's one of the few things that doesn't like hurt my knees. Yeah. But I won't do it on the street because yeah. it's insane. Like nobody pays attention anymore, and I get that. Yeah. But the trail riding, I get. It'd be pretty cool. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Before we get into it, we have our finale scheduled. We are doing a live feed of the finale, which will be Thursday afternoon, December nineteenth. Uh, exact time to be determined. We're still kind of working that out, but go to our website or you can send us an email directly to hello at spacespodcast.com or go to our website spacespodcast.com to leave us your email so we can send out invites and directions on how to join us for that live uh, finale. Um, Also, our Instagram, if you haven't been following us, on Instagram, we've been doing a quiz uh, every other week, and the quiz winner of this whole season will be joining us as well, so we'll announce that through Instagram as well, so if you're not following us, make sure you follow us there uh, to see that announcement or join us for the show, uh, that live feed. So come hang out with us, send us your info so we can get that those directions to you. Um, but so I was saying we, this is our second time doing this healthcare thing. The only, uh, experience I have, we talked about it a little bit before is I went to high school, a medical, um, magnet high school. So that's right. So I have loose knowledge of medical terms and a few things here and there, but uh, I only, I only know anything from surgeries that I've had. Yeah. That's about it. Yeah. Mental illness. I have plenty. (laughs) (laughs) So today, good segue. So today we are discussing uh, behavioral, behavioral and mental health facilities. So our guest today is dedicated to improving patients' lives through design. Her tireless pursuit of excellence while designing for often underserved populations of behavioral health clients is having a tremendous positive effect in the communities she serves. A respected partner in the design industry, her skills thrive in this complex and sensitive building typology. She is passionate about creating state-of-the-art facilities 
to improve outcomes, reduce the stigma around mental health environments, and bring a sense of dignity to clinicians, staff, and patients in the field. Please help me welcome Stephanie Vito. (laughs) Stephanie, thanks for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Great to be here with you guys. So, Stephanie, besides um, your your bio, uh, anything else you would like to kind of leave the listeners with? Tell us a little bit about yourself, hobbies uh, sure. or anything. I'm actually <laughs> a, an avid road cyclist. So oh. I oh, there's oh. a Drake Jason, but I'm the one in the middle of the road. Dude, <laughs> like <laughs> you seem like such a nice person. I don't want you to die. Like you know what I mean? Like I want you to like, get one of those little. They have those little like mirror things that hang off the, the front. Yeah, 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 where you can see people coming. They look goofy as hell, but like, yeah. you just give yourself every opportunity. <laughs> like, I just, yeah. I mean, we've all seen it though, right? Because yeah. some of these people just should not be driving cars anymore either. Like, they're just terrible, yeah. right? And I, I know I'm on my phone right now too, but I don't do that when I drive. Yeah. But all it takes is like a little veer, yeah. you know what I mean? And you're just going to, yeah. so, so just, you know, go to the side. Go, go yeah. to the side. I try to stay as tight as possible. I got a light and a bright white jacket. So, yeah. you know. Well, that's good because these idiots were wearing black. Oh my god! Yeah. I know. I'm like, it's literally a death wish. Like, I just, you know, it's and it, 3:45 in the morning or 3:50 in the morning. Yeah, wearing like pretty much all dark. Didn't have any of the blinking things or reflective stuff. Oh my god! And I'm just like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> That's crazy. You know, I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> but yeah, so besides that, for leisure um, and recreation, I am based out of Buffalo, and I travel kind of all over the country. Um, seeing different behavioral health care hospitals. I have a newborn at home, actually, five-month-old baby named Eliza, and husband and uh, dog named Maisie. Husband Husband and dog are named the same same name? Husband named Dan, dog named Maisie. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, okay, so so since you're from Buffalo, we were talking off. Griffin Gastropub. Yeah, yep. That food is amazing there. Yeah, it's good. It's um kind of it's in I think it's technically in Niagara Falls maybe, but it's close to Buffalo, um and and kind of right between Buffalo, the city, and the falls. Is that um, is that what it is? I I could be on. I could, I have no idea where it was. I just followed yeah. the maps, and I know we had to come across the border again. By the mm-hmm. way, that experience when you go into Canada, they're like the nicest people, right? Yeah. The nicest. They're like welcome, all this kind of stuff, and whatever. And then we had a bunch of hockey kids, so they knew why we were there. You come back over and it's like the fifth degree. Yeah. You know what I mean? And they could give a sh- about who you are. I bleep myself. Did you see that? <laughs> they could really care who you are. And it was just a really interesting experience within like two hours time frame, right? But that that Griffin Gastro Pub, so shout out to those guys. The food is fantastic. Yeah. It was really the, – yeah. the food, the sides, and the dessert was killer. Anyway. And I'm the just, beer. And the what? And the beer. Ah, I can't speak to that. I don't really drink much. so. <laughs> uh, but I heard, yeah, everybody was sharing the same stuff. So it was cool. Yeah, yeah. So, Stephanie, um, let's jump into the discussion a little bit. Or actually, before we do. No, let's jump into it. Why are you looking at me like that? I'm trying to decide through your eyes. Oh, <laughs> careful. So, uh, so Stephanie, tell us a little bit That's about... how my wife and I started dating. Be careful. <laughs> <laughs> Stephanie, tell us a little bit about uh, mental health and behavioral um, facilities and, and maybe a little bit about the difference between them? Yeah, so um, behavioral health care hospitals are a bit, bit different from what you might think of as a, in a medical hospital. And there's a couple big differences. One is uh, kind of the ambulatory nature of the patients. And so rather than designing around patients being in their rooms, like, like what happened at a medical hospital, 
Um, the facilities are designed really more to around ambulatory patients to encourage patients to be up and about during the day so that they can be receiving care and treatment and engaging in different social activities. And so the, the bedroom itself really just becomes a sleeping nighttime space. And it's more about the daytime activity and treatment spaces. So that's one big difference. Another difference is on the, the delivery of medication and food to the, the inpatient mental health units versus a medical hospital. Um, you know, in a, in a medical hospital, the, your medication is brought right to you in your room. Your food is brought right to you in your room. And this is a little bit of a different model where patients will be out in activity spaces and in group rooms throughout the day. And they also participate in group dining. And so there's actually group dining rooms and the food is delivered more, more almost, you know, cafeteria style, if you mm. will. So a little bit of difference there. And then I think another big difference to point out is the requirement for uh, anti-ligature design in behavioral health facilities. What was that? Um, Anti-what? Anti-ligature. So that means reducing points in a space or an environment that could be tied on for high suicide risk oh, clients. Okay. And so, you know, everything from the door hardware to the bolts used yeah. to um, the sink provided, all of those elements come into play when designing inpatient mental health spaces to make oh, them really cow. safe. Do you know if that's uh, kind of reminded me of our prison episode? Do you know if that similar design concept or... Um, do they cross? Does, does, yeah. Do they cross spaces? elements? For yeah. So in inpatient mental health, we we really try to focus on making them less institutional looking. Uh, they have a home like quality to them. These are you know spaces that people spend um, time away from their home, and so making this their home away from home and having a softer feel is something that we try to do in opposition to maybe like a prison setting. Yeah. And I know, you know, there is some attention to obviously safety and security in a prison, but that home-like and softer, more comfortable environment is, is what makes the inpatient facility unique. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious. I don't know if we asked this question, but I mean, how did you get into the space? So it was kind of a, um, like, it's a unique, you know, I don't feel like you like popped up as a six-year-old and was like, here's what I want to do. You know yeah. what I mean? Right. Even as an architectural graduate, that that wasn't something that came to mind. Um, I honestly, until several years ago, before I got into this, didn't even really know that behavioral healthcare architect was something that existed and that there was a need for. Um, and when I came to Canon Design, it just happened that in Buffalo, they had a behavioral healthcare studio. And the need at the time when I when I started was on behavioral healthcare projects. And I just really took to it and really... Um, the nuance that's required, the level of knowledge that's required the, from, you know, the overall environment. But then, like I was mentioning, down to door hardware even yeah. um, take is pretty interesting to me. So I've stuck with it ever since. Good for you. So uh, I think this would be a good point to kind of give our listeners a little bit of a understanding of how behavioral health and mental care facilities have come about. So to do that, you got to go back in time. Ninth century, hospitals that provided care for mental health began to take form. By at least 872, a hospital in Cairo was providing music therapy. However, mental illness had also had a long history of being stigmatized in societies. From being thought of as a mark of the devil, 
to being considered a moral punishment. The treatment has historically not always made scientific sense and has been brutal and inhumane. Trepanning in the Neolithic period, for example, involved chipping a hole in a person's skull to release evil spirits. Early on, most individuals with symptoms of mental illnesses received care from family members at home, but some individuals seemed too violent or disruptive to remain at home. As populations grew and mental illness became a social issue, community institutions such as monasteries, towers, and private hospitals emerged to handle needs collectively. Private hospitals, in fact, depended on the money paid by wealthier families to care for their mentally ill family members to support their main charitable missions of caring for physically sick poor. By the 17th century, privately run asylums appeared and expanded in size. The Bethlehem Royal Hospital in London had an underground parlor, kitchen, storage cupboards, and 21 rooms, and above ground there were eight rooms for servants and additional individuals deemed mentally ill. Those identified as dangerous or disturbing were chained. But Bethlehem was an otherwise open building, allowing its inhabitants to roam freely. Then there was Benjamin Rush, often called the father of American psychiatry. He wrote the first systematic textbook on mental diseases in America in 1812 entitled Medical Inquiries and Observations Upon Diseases of the Mind. He believed that mental diseases were caused by irritation of the blood vessels in the brain. His treatment methods included bleeding, purging, hot and cold baths, and mercury. He invented a tranquilizer chair and a gyrator for psychiatric patients. As awareness of treatment grew, reformers throughout the United States began to adopt a growing European approach of humane treatment. In 1841, Dorothea Dix, a school teacher, became the foremost advocate for the humane care of the mentally ill when she found mentally ill people at a Boston jail confined under inhumane conditions. She was credited with the establishment of 32 state mental hospitals throughout the United States. The emergence of state asylums in the United States began with the Utica State Hospital in 1843, New York's first state-run and funded facility designed to care for the mentally ill. But it was the Lunacy Act of 1845 in England and Wales that was the important benchmark that changed everything. The key was that it changed the status of mentally ill people to patients who required treatment. The act also created oversight and regulations for asylums and physicians. Many of the state hospitals built in the U.S. during this period followed the Kirkbride Plan. Thomas Kirkbride published a book called On the Construction, Organization, and General Arrangements of Hospitals for the Insane which influenced the architecture and construction of state asylums. With a background that fostered a belief in humane treatment of patients, Kirkbride's plans had an architectural style meant to have a curative effect. Kirkbride's hospital plans were linear, with a central building to house administrative offices, kitchens, and staff living quarters, with wings extending on either side. 
The plan called for no more than 250 patients living in a building. Each ward had a wide central corridor with sitting alcoves, single patient rooms, and small dormitories. Multiple wards allowed for classification of patients according to their condition. Kirkbride also paid attention to ventilation, heating, sanitary arrangements, and space for patient occupation and recreation. After 1870, as the average hospital size increased, Kirkbride's influence declined, and by 1890, asylums began to come under fire as economics loomed large. Local governments avoided the cost of caring for the elderly by redefining senility as a psychiatric problem and sending them to state-supported asylums, adding to the patient population. By this time, every state had one or more publicly supported mental hospitals, which all expanded in size, some up to 13,000 patients. By the 20th century, the hospitals had serious issues of overcrowding, housing over 500,000 patients. Furthermore, funding cuts, especially during economic declines and war, led to patient starvation and death. Asylums again became notorious for poor conditions, overcrowding, and ill treatment. The awareness of poor conditions led to class action lawsuits and a movement for deinstitutionalization. In conjunction with the availability of a new medication, chlorpromazine, there was an argument that community-based alternative services would be cheaper and more effective. However, as states deinstitutionalized, another shift occurred where jails and prisons became the new institution. In summer 2009, author and columnist Heather McDonald stated in City Journal, quote, Jails have become society's primary mental institutions, though few have the funding or expertise to carry out that role properly. At Rikers, 28% of the inmates require mental health services, a number that rises each year." End quote. I spoke with a husband and wife duo to highlight the clinician perspective. Jason Shively, a licensed marriage and family therapist at CNTRD Counseling, and Francis Shively, a marriage and family therapist trainee, past outpatient clinician and high school therapist, and past architectural designer, who, between the two, have dealt with various patients from suicide and addiction patients to regular mental health therapy sessions for children in various settings. Part of a team of therapists that coordinated with the on-site school counselor regarding which students I'd be working with and um, would meet during school hours at the front office room. So it was very, almost sort of an ad hoc type setting because we're using the existing structure and working with what we had. Um, the community mental health clinic is similar to a private practice setting where the clients would check in or wait for their therapist or fill out paperwork in the waiting room. And then the therapy is conducting, uh, conducted in one of multiple uh, therapy rooms at the clinic. We usually have uh, a client base that comes from our detox. So they will um, be medically cleared to leave detox. Uh, they'll sign up kind of for another program, whether it be residential or intensive outpatient, where they commit to... A 30-day program. Even with the advancement in psychiatry and greater public understanding, stigmas of mental illness persist in society, making it difficult to address. One group particularly at risk are children struggling with mental illness whose parents often remain silent because of the stigma. Of the 74.5 million children in the United States, an estimated 17.1 million 
have or have had a psychiatric disorder. Half of these illnesses occur before the age of 14 and 75% by the age of 24. For children ages 13 to 18, some of the more pervasive conditions are anxiety disorder, which affect 31.9% of the children that face psychiatric disorders, ADHD and disruptive behavior at 19.6%, depression and bipolar disorders at 14.3%, and eating disorders at 2.7%. Through their experiences, Jason and Francis have found that environments to provide therapy to children can call for unique conditions and design features. One clinic in particular that came to mind that had a really good, um, I'll call it circulation layout, where there were multiple entrances and exits um, with certain rooms that you could access from a particular uh, entrance. And, you know, if there's like family complications, um, custody battles and whatnot, um, and they're working with multiple members of the family, um, they usually try to avoid having the same appointments at the same time, but if it ever happens, they have the circulation in a way that they don't actually have to run into that particular family member. So that child can be safe in coming to the clinic and receiving mental health care without possibly even running into, say, a perpetrator if they were a victim. In school settings, particularly in lower income communities, restricted budgets or lack of resources can add a complexity to treatment you're as a therapist kind of thrown around to whatever is available, which creates kind of an inconsistency for the client that sometimes we might be meeting in a multimedia room in the library and other times in the principal's office or the vice principal's office or just some corner of a playground. And when they don't have space for the therapist, that's usually um, somewhat due to uh, lower income or sometimes mm-hmm. Medi-Cal type clients. Inefficiencies in setting can undoubtedly lead to issues with confidentiality. Oh, absolutely. Um, I've seen school closets that they've makeshifted with egg carton crates just to like mm-hmm. mitigate sound and it's visible. And um, that's like the best thing they could do to try to make sure that no one hears our conversation. And I would say uh, sometimes working in schools, you might be thrown again into a small space that was meant for like a little bit of, of private time for a student. Um, and I remember working in one little office or one little reading room that had a round table. And on one side, there's a loud classroom doing some activity. And so since you can hear them, you, you know, at some point they might be able to hear you. And on the other side is the library where they're supposed to be quiet, but they're usually being loud and they potentially might hear you as well. So with having a mobile phone, if you don't carry around the sound machine, you might just play some white noise and speak quietly which isn't ideal for being able to connect with someone and hear someone and do good work. Yeah, it's funny that he mentioned uh, white noise because it seems like every clinic um, has these portable white noise machines that have a switch. And it's never been an integrated design element to, um, I guess, keep noise out. There's always It always just looked like an afterthought. As we continue to advance, societal changes are affecting the process of clinical work. I think that in our industry, it's becoming more and more acceptable to provide telehealth, having, you know, FaceTime session with your client uh, in the comfort of their own home. It was initially thought of as taboo a couple of years ago, but they're slowly embracing it. Yeah, I would agree with, uh, with the change in technology and 
with younger generations now wanting to get therapy that I think um, telehealth or teletherapy is going to be on the rise. And hopefully also with a large, maybe baby boomer generation, they might not be as mobile. So the ability to do therapy sessions over video or even phone might be very helpful. After conversing with Jason and Francis, it's clear that space is paramount and a significant concern to effectively complete their work. I actually think that more there should be more separation of space. I haven't really seen that too much in mental health clinics in general, but just having a you know separate space for bathrooms. I've run into clients in the bathroom and it's no, you know, it's the same bathroom that's available for the therapist and for the client. So it would be cool to have that um, sort of um, space for them and then a space for, you know, others. I think it doesn't take that much to like make the therapist happy. But one thing I think is important is being able to have space that is collaborative. Mm -hmm. Uh, One important thing as a therapist is being able to collaborate with the team and be able to discuss treatment planning or issues that come up and then also being able to have um, yes collaborative space but also that space where it is your office you can sit and do your charting with some peace and also be able to have confidentiality with clients yeah i'd have to agree with that for sure i but uh i'd say like throughout my uh developing career as a therapist i've just fought for space um it's really hard when we realize we can't see a client who's in crisis because there's no space for us. So as long as there is a space for us to be able to come alongside them and to work with them and to sit with them in their crisis, that's really such an important thing because without that, we really can't, we really can't work. Today, only a small number of historic public and private psychiatric hospitals exist. Care and treatment are now delivered through a variety of services, including crisis services, short-term and acute psychiatric care units, outpatient services, and assisted living environments. While there has been improvement, stigma, discrimination, and neglect prevent care and treatment from reaching people with mental disorders, as nearly two-thirds of people with a known mental disorder never seek help from a health professional. Great strides are still needed to advance the conversation of mental health. But with the tools, knowledge, and experience to create nurturing environments, the building industry has the opportunity and duty to exercise its services to improve the built environment and contribute to advancing the conversation of mental health through the spaces we create. So Stephanie, um, you mentioned that you travel a lot for uh, to look at different facilities. Um, what is that experience like, and and what are some of the the sort of dramatic differences that you see, or, or design elements that you're kind of picking up on your on your tours? Yeah. Um, so professionally, it's really great to go around the country and get exposure to lots of different things that are happening around the country. It helps us bring that collective knowledge to each one of our clients and kind of be able to share, you know, the pros and cons of the way that other facilities are doing things and the other the ways that they're operating. It, it also enables you to see different programs of different scales. So you could see a small, you know, 16 bed facility or a 300 bed facility, you know, say in, um, 
Virginia or West or Pennsylvania and understand the challenges that each one of those face given their size. Personally, it's also kind of quite fun to travel around the country and see different areas uh, that you might not often go to, you know, Oklahoma, Kansas, in contrast to like Princeton and New York yeah. uh, and California. It, it's really nice at a personal level too to just embed yourself in different cultures or, uh, around the country. And, you know, also it leaves you with a ton of travel stories, um, <laughs> you know, I could go on and on about in terms of logistics and delays and tornadoes and hail and all of that kind Jeez. of stuff. Yeah, but I think that's a good one to come back to later at the end of the okay. episode. Yeah. yeah so we'll, sure. we'll save that. We'll put a pin in that one. Sure. Um, <laughs> when you're designing these facilities, what are some of the biggest challenges that, that you're facing today? So that I face or that the hospitals face? Um, maybe both. Both. Yeah. both. Let's start with the hospitals first. Yeah. So the hospitals, um, there's a lot of aging infrastructure on their campuses, and that's a, a challenge for them because, you know, not only are they trying to deliver care in an old facility, but then their operating expenses are also a lot more. Um, and so they're not really able to maximize the treatment that they that they could if they were in a newer, uh, more updated, more efficient facility. And so um, a lot of the older facilities are giant campuses located in really rural areas. And so they might have 20 to 30 buildings just dispersed all over a campus. And then trying to operate and keep um, those buildings all in good conditions is, is really you know time consuming, energy consuming, money consuming. And a lot of the campuses are looking for consolidation right now. That's kind of a big thing that we're seeing, um, looking to integrate all of the services they provide on a campus into you know, one or two larger buildings and, and being able to decommission parts of their campus and, and other buildings on site that are just really frankly outdated and not able to um, help. The, they're not able to allow the clinicians to deliver good care. Yeah. That's one thing that we're seeing. Are, the, um, are these like those kind of what you would imagine in a movie, like these old psych wards? Or is that the kind of thing you're seeing as far as the older uh, facilities? Yeah, sometimes for sure. So some work that we looked into in Michigan, in Virginia, and in Texas there, those are, uh, and actually Kansas as well, they were um, state hospitals that really were, came about in you know, the 1900s and were original, had original, you know, they were called asylums at the time, but had original buildings from that time period on their campus still, and some even still in operation. And so you can just imagine even like construction technology and building technology has changed so much that, you know, now a large span of safe glass is possible where, you know, smaller punched open openings is really what populates these other buildings. And yeah. so the ability to just get daylight into newer construction um, and help with, you know, the environment on the inside is, is something that's now possible. So, yeah, they are still operating in some of those kinds of conditions. So uh, going back to sort of the challenge for you, um, I guess it would be sort of in line with what you're already describing, but as a designer, is that sort of kind of the stuff that you're trying to address? Yeah, so, you know, this can also apply to the design of maybe any space, but, or any larger space, but there's a lot of complexity that goes into making everyone on the team um, happy with their space. And so we have something like, clinicians and the security team and the facility people, the people that operate the building, all with their own perspective and all with their own agenda. 
and all of their own, you know, value systems or priorities. And that, and that's really great. And so everyone is bringing that to the table. And sometimes they don't necessarily all align um, in terms of their needs and wants and, and viewpoints. So our job is to really listen and collect all the information and try to find an architectural solution that will um, fit everyone's needs um, throughout the project. So, you know, not, not to mention the CEO and the COO in terms of cost and financial operations, logistics, all of that also comes into play too. Oh yeah, that. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's keeping a lot of people, um, you know, happy with the design, involved in the design and feeling like they have input and that their opinions and needs are respected and, and ultimately achieved in the final design. I'm curious when you're, when you're having those team meetings, I, I'd imagine, right. In some regard, whether it be the clinicians or the security team or whomever, what tends to be like the hot topic for, you know, obviously CEO and everybody, they, they want to say they want everybody to have a great experience, but then it's bottom line and cost most of the time. Right. Um, but what seems to be the hot topic for like the clinician and then the security team and the, you know what I mean? Like what, yeah. what's something you've learned along the way that's kind of like, okay, I always need to incorporate X. Yeah. Um, those two in general in juxtaposition with one another clinical team and security team, that's always a point of contention and, and a point of really good conversation. So we want these facilities to be open and welcoming and inviting and bright but also you have to keep in mind that they need to be safe and secure at the same time. And so mm -hmm. where is the balance between those two things? And, you know, in, in a recent project that just opened actually in August, we, during the design, we had a lot of conversation about what the first thing you would see when you come through the front door would be and the kind of aesthetic, the environment, um, who the person is that's even sitting there, mm -hmm. you know, that's doing the welcoming and, Ultimately, we were able to find a balance of that being a kind of welcoming reception point and then the security process being located kind of off to the side, um, out of sight, but still, you know, in close proximity to the front door so that the security team could have a presence, but not necessarily be the first thing that you encounter when you walk in. So it is about trying to find the balance for all of those different conditions in addition to, you know, the balance of cost and operations. So the well. warmingness and the welcome and the wanting to be there balanced with the necessity of, you know, security detail, which isn't always easy. It's like the idea between this and a prison, yeah. right? When you think about yeah. it and that, you know, when you walk into prison, it's not about welcome, yeah. right? You don't want them to be there. Nobody wants you to be there. It's about more so security and enforcement. Yeah, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so that kind of swings to one end of the, of the spectrum. And then, you know, another type of you know, long-term residential facility might be really on the other end of the spectrum. And then behavioral health really trying to find the marriage between those yeah. two elements. Very cool. Mm -hmm. oh, for the inpatient, they're, they're there for some longer period of time. How long is that, that time usually? Is it yeah. sort of for the rest of their lives or is some some mm -hmm. period of time? Um, so definitely the older model of care um, from, you know, like the early 1900s was about patients kind of coming to these facilities for a, a really long period of time, if not the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. But as treatment has progressed and as community um, clinics have become more and more popular, um, there's really a, a goal to treat the patient in the least restrictive environment as possible. Mm -hmm. So that means that you know, their length of stay um, in some facilities actually is as short as like three to five days. Um, it's really about stabilization, getting um, a balance between activities, therapy, and medications 
you know, all in balance and in line for that particular patient. And then finding them programs in the community to then help support them as they go, you know, go back to their daily life. And then there are other facilities still where the length of stay um, might be several months uh, to several years as well. But really in any of them, during, you know, given any of the length of stays, the goal is to actually um, you know, move all of the patients back into the community and have other programs like day hospitals and um, clinics help support them um, doing, you know, living their best life. Does that influence your design uh, very much, the, the, the variation of stay? I imagine you're trying to go for something that's a little more flexible uh, rather than geared uh, specifically towards one direction. Yeah, definitely. Um, even so in the, in the facilities where patients might stay a little bit longer, you know, months um, to a year, we try to include other components besides just the inpatient unit that almost are um, kind of destination spaces. So things like a gymnasium or a pool or a hair salon or a, a dentist, you know, clinic, a cafeteria, um, a library, other things like that, where when, you know, patients have some leisure time, they can go and, and do daily activities, just like, you know, anyone in the community would have the opportunity or choice to go work out or, you know, go get their hair done. This can still happen um, when they're there for such a longer period of time. And then when the stays are a little bit more on the shorter side, um, those aren't as critical. Uh, we try to offer some scale of them, but they're not as impactful when the stay is so short. Mm-hmm. So what societal changes have you seen or I guess have brought attention towards this topic? Um, we know it's kind of at the top of conversation today. Um, Is it? Mental health. Is it? Yeah, I don't pay attention to the news. Sorry. <laughs> yes. I, I don't. I really don't. Oh, I guess I guess it ties into a lot of the conversation with gun control and everything else these days too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, so uh, I was asking her. Oh, <laughs> Stephanie, what do you think uh, societal changes have brought mental health to? Oh, I see what you're saying now. Yeah, I brought that up. Okay, <laughs> to the top of uh, of conversations today and and sort of into the forefront. Yeah. Uh, so there's actually been a couple le- legislative changes that have helped. In 1996, the Mental Health Parity Act was passed, and that basically said that insurers couldn't put a lifetime dollar limit any lower than what they would put for medical and surgical benefits. So it basically brought mental health treatment up to the same level in terms of how much lifetime money an insurance company um, would spend for that issue um, for everyone. And that's a huge win for that space, I'd imagine. Yeah. That was huge. Yeah, that made a really big difference. Um, and even before then, they weren't even required to cover it at all. Um, so oh. the amount of money that they had to spend on behavioral health was zero wow. by law. And, you know, for medical surgical, tens of thousands of millions of dollars limit for a lifetime policy. Um, so it really brought them up to the same level, which was which was great. And then in the Affordable Care Act, it became mental health became an essential essential health benefit. And again, that just helped open up access. And um, it meant that. They couldn't have any like higher deductibles or copays for mental health services than they would for medical services that they provided. And actually, the percentage of claims um, from 2010 to 2011, so just within one year, that were claims for mental health services went from four to 11 percent of of all claims from wow. companies. So it made it kind of an immediate huge impact in terms of expanding access, which was great. 
Wow. And then, as you mentioned, um, you know, it has been in the media recently. Um, every time an uh, unfortunate act of mass violence occurs, it comes up in conversation in association with, you know, gun control and things like that. And I think it's a little bit of it's a little bit of a tricky thing because it's great that public and society are talking about mental health because it's really important to have it as an open conversation, but kind of routinely blaming or, or right. pointing fingers at mental illness and mass violence in terms of their linkage. Right. I think it, it kind of is, it's unfounded and it, it just adds to the stigma of mental health and illness. So I think, you know, there's a really fine balance and a fine line there in terms of how we talk about, mental illness and mass violence because that can get a little stereotypical i think i I love what you're saying with that because you know i don't know if we're ever going to have that debate you know michelle and i are on opposite pages with with that particular subject (laughs) but what you're saying i think is totally important right you've got right or left blue or red whatever you want to call it on the complete extreme ends of either either side of this right when obviously we know with almost everything we deal with in life the answer is in the middle you know what i mean so it's like if we could just ditch your you know, uh, guns cause everything and we could ditch the whole, come steal it from my cold dead hands. You know what I mean? Like, and, and focus on what's in the middle, you might actually find some true resolve, but, um, the way that it's in the media these days and saying it's either this extreme or this extreme, you know, is not helping anything. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? There's no, there's, there's no solution that's going to come from that because everybody's so staunchly entrenched in their stupid belief that they don't understand Mm -hmm. that they're not willing to find a solution. You know, in a lot of these situations, you talk to people that are pro gun, I'm pro gun. You want to put more restrictions on how I get my hands on things? Fine. I don't care. I'll I'll wait the time or whatever it is. You know what I mean? But there has to be something in the middle. And I agree with you. The hard part is now it's like, everything that's been done. Well, it's because they were mentally ill. It's like, well, that's not fair. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I, you know, but, that's not the case. Yeah. Like there's I, no way that's always the case. There's yeah. never the, the, the two terms never and always like do not exist. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm sure there's, that's part of it, but that, like you mentioned, Stephanie, the constant linkage, uh, yeah. is, is an issue, brutal. um, for the mental health space and, and sort of putting this violent, um, sort of stigma on, 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 uh, on people that are dealing with mental, mental health. Yeah. And there's there's different levels to things that For people sure. are trying to deal with. Like I uh, wanted to mention, there's been this sort of rise in or perceived rise in depression and anxiety. Right. And that's been linked to social media. Um, mm-hmm. Are you guys kind of, um, is that influencing, I don't know how it, how it could well, necessarily, I, but is that influencing sort of what you guys are doing or considerations that, that you're taking to some extent? Let me, let me, can I ask it? Can I ask a question along with that? Yeah. I, I you're an architect, right? Yeah. So I, I think they have to be, you know, you have to be aware of things that are going on, but I don't know if you do, do because you're in this space, do you go get any kind of special training to help understand the psyche of stuff like this or no? Mm-hmm. We don't. Um, my, my particular knowledge comes from really interfacing with the clinicians and doing on-site observations. Right. So, you know, I'll sit in an intake department or on an inpatient unit for a few days and watch Correct. the operation, okay. watch the challenges the staff have Got and it. stuff like that. But, um, you know, the social media aspect, I'm not, it's a little bit outside of kind of my wheelhouse. So I'm not yeah. really too familiar with the statistics on that part. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. 
Um, and I just, I was curious because I know that there are, you know, various things that you can do uh, to address certain, um, uh, I don't know if the word would be ailments or, or what people are dealing with. Um, I, I was reading about uh, how do you design for someone with um, uh, a multi, I know, I think the term has changed, but someone with multiple personality. personalities. Yeah, but it's it's a new term now. I can't think of what it is, but I, I read this book and they talked about how um, they designed for this one um, client or uh, a patient, and uh, I think they designed their home and they were able to get them comfortable in their own home and they designed each corner to be uh, to be to to react to a certain personality so like one corner was de- uh, designed for like the child personality one was for the the parent personality or whatever right and the person was able to sort of get uh everything out to deal with it yeah, yeah. and then once they were left the home they were able to sort of function so it sort of balanced them out to um Instead Make of each side, each part comfortable. Yeah. And, well, instead of instead of dismissing it, yeah. or instead of trying to not honor whatever that is you're dealing with, it was able to actually find a comfortable environment in which that individual could be themselves. Yeah. Whatever version that was at the moment, but yeah. could be themselves. Yeah. Right. Which makes a lot of sense. It's funny. You know, I kind of I was talking to somebody about something the other day, and it was like, look, like it's almost like having to understand your strengths and weaknesses, right? Mm-hmm. And you have to honor both. You can't ignore the strengths. You can't ignore the weakness. You have to honor them to be able to truly work with them. You know what I mean? So I think in that in that situation, that architect or whoever was was doing that was doing exactly that. Mm-hmm. Was honoring the person and saying, "Okay, let's make let's not make you ignore one or the other. Just say it has to be a certain way." Problem solving, right? Isn't yeah. that what you've always told me? <laughs> yeah. Right? An architect is a problem solver. Yeah. So um, I deal with a lot of problems from architects, by the way. But anyway, <laughs> but um, but they did a really good job then in that example. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think there's a lot to be said for things like that. Yeah. So I imagine dealing with sort of this depression and anxiety, there's things you could probably do with color and, and certain... Uh, yeah, is it beige? Elements. Like what is the color that everything goes? Because everything's always some form of beige, right? Yeah. It's one of my... Um pet peeves is, is too much beige actually so <laughs> see it's always um, beige man try to encourage them moving away from from beige because you know there are a lot of other enjoyable colors um but i think you know and it's been proven and shown that uh, daylight and access to nature yeah. help with mood help with the calming sensation help uh, decrease average length of stay and so you know, for depression, anxiety, and and um, reducing stress and creating as le- as least amount of stress in the environment as possible is something that we try to do through daylight, through access to nature, and also through wayfinding. So, you know, well, you know what what wayfinding? when you get lost, right, and you kind of like in a panic, like where am I going? Um, where am I? I'm trying to get somewhere. I have to be on time, like all of that kind of stuff. So, the easier it is for patients to move through a facility, the more clear it is. Um, even different graphics on the outside of the entry to the units so that they have some sort of identity. You know, I'm in the yellow flower unit or I'm in the, you know, um, purple flat, you know, the theme is flowers or something like that, but uh, some sort of graphic identity that helps them know that this, that they're in the right spot um, and, and really reduce stress while they're in the facility too. And then having spaces out and around the building, like um, outdoor classrooms or recreation fields or, you know, a small garden, um, those are all elements that can help really 
just give space to breathe, space to have a calming interaction with nature and, and ultimately help with some, some of these diagnoses. Uh, I, we, I can't remember what episode it was we talked about, but obviously it had to do with architecture. <laughs> and it was business parks and how they were starting to tie. I remember a couple specific buildings, like the big glass walls, and it was like bringing you into nature because there was like a lot of stuff on the outside. I can't remember it's which one it was. hospital episode. Was it, it might have been. Yeah. I mean, which makes a lot of sense because it was trying to tie the two. And it's totally true. Like I recently changed my path to work. So mm. I actually take an area now that takes me roughly five or six minutes longer to get to the mm-hmm. office, but I'm mm-hmm. literally going through a canyon with trees. You can see the sun coming up over the hills. Like mm-hmm. there's no stop and go, you know what I mean? And it's just like, it's cool. It's crisp. Even on the way home, I, it is so worth it. Like it is, stress. it is, dude, no, <laughs> like you're in the right frame of mind when you get to the office Yeah. and when I'm pissed after I leave the office, I believe myself twice now, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like you, you totally de-stress on the way home because you're surrounded by not the hustle and the bustle, which is what most of us, you know, signed up for, you know what I mean? Yeah. I totally signed up for that. And if we could figure out a way to really do that more, I know a lot of, you know, master plans and things like that have all the open spaces and pathways and those types of things. But I, I totally agree. I mean, it's such, such a mood changer, you know, it really yeah. helps you set your mind right. That's awesome. The, you know, my, my kind of top three spaces or moments when I'm the most happiest throughout life, you know, the first couple have to do with like family and friends. And the, the last one is just when I'm in, in awe of the beauty and power of nature, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it just, it, it lifts your spirit. It's, it puts you in context with the amazing, you know, aspects of the world. And it just, you know, helps strengthen your, your own inner feelings and your own, you know, mental health, really. So I, I think that's um, a huge aspect of what we do um, is really trying to incorporate nature as in many ways as possible. So, so let me ask this question. So when you're talking about, you know, other spaces you've been, it's more rural, those types of things. And those be, those may be, you know, longer ago established uh, places. I'm assuming you're working on new projects where maybe it's not always in rural areas. Um, yeah. You know, I know Buffalo has plenty of those. <laughs> but <laughs> when you get into maybe more compacted areas like California and stuff mm-hmm. like that, you know, what are you doing with those probably more commercial environments, you know, I don't, I, I mean, you tell me, is it, are you still getting planted into areas where it is highly dense or is it still very outskirtish? Yeah. Um, a little bit of both. And okay. we definitely are seeing more and more urban locations. Okay. And with that, um, kind of what you're alluding to is the challenge of how yeah. you get outdoor space that we just spent, you know, a few minutes talking about. Yeah, exactly. And it is a challenge. Um, the one that recently opened project that I, I just finished, um, the outdoor space was a challenge. It was basically a city block, streets on all four sides, um, parking garage uh, that's kind of stepped down, a lot of hard concrete around the site, right. um, no real you know, green space in right. sight. Um, and so we took some of the plaza, the entry plaza, we, we secured it, made it a secure space for the patients, and ultimately designed a, a courtyard that had both hardscape and um, softscape you know, grass and planting. Really? And, in there yeah so it, it just you know it became part of the block part of the design um and you know it's not as extensive as you know say a facility located in rural pennsylvania but it is possible still for patients to get get outside um walk around the paths have you know little cookouts at the grill um sit under the shade canopy like all that kind of stuff is, is still possible now was it was it fully roof covered or is it more atrium like or what was that 
That one was a courtyard condition, so it was open air and it had some shade okay. structures around yeah. it too. So in the heat, you know, people could still sh sit under shade. Yeah, I heard that slip, by the way. That was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not letting you get away with that. You totally pursed your lips on it. The, uh, yeah. Well, because I mean, when you're saying shade structure, I was trying to picture in my mind it being more of an atrium. I'm like, well, what are you shading from? The fluorescent lights? You know what I mean? But so that, that oh, makes, yeah, yeah, that makes more sense. And then here's the other question I have when you're saying tie into nature. Like there's always been such a big tie to like water right? As being one of the most peaceful environments and things like that. that's why people buy fountains, right? Like my wife wants a fountain outside her bedroom yeah. window, right? Do you incorporate a lot of water elements into what you guys do? So like in that mm -hmm. situation there where you have the courtyard, is there like a river running through it? Is it fountains? Like what do you tend to do? Um, so that, that's a little bit trickier because um, some patients have issues uh, with access, free access to water. Um, there's a lot of, there are some diagnoses that patients will over drink and actually ca oh. cause harm to themselves. Got it. Okay. And so even though the sound of water, I, I hundred percent agree yeah. is really calming. Yeah. Um, it makes it a little bit more difficult sure. to actually incorporate it as a live feature. Got it. Um, but sound machines or Got other it. things like that, that okay. does it, that do it superficially, uh, artificially, yeah. um, can, can be done. Yes. I mean, that's those, that's those little things that when you're an expert in your space, like that, it really makes sense you yeah. know what I mean, to do yeah. that because I'm sitting here thinking that would be super soothing, you know, except for the guy that's at the bottom of the stream trying to just pound gallons. Right. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. Uh, Stephanie, are there, um, you mentioned a couple projects so far. Is there, are there any other projects that kind of uh, stand out that you're working on uh, that would be good examples to discuss? Yeah, I'm, I'm starting to work on one right now out in California, out in your way, actually. And um, it is a campus, that smaller campus, that had two buildings burned down about two years ago in wildfire. Oh, wow. And so, you know, small silver lining, this is really an opportunity for them to Rebuild, update their facilities, yeah. update their environment of care, um, consolidate services, and, and make this a state-of-the-art uh, campus and facility and you know how do we do something like that but still respect the buildings that are there and the way that they operate um, and are used to operating but but bring new life to it and so you know as as devastating as it was for them to lose those buildings a, a, a small you know like I said a small silver lining is the fact that they basically get to build new state-of-the-art behavioral health care space and that really isn't you know because of funding struggles and and other issues that really isn't something that a lot of campuses get to do yeah. very often yeah. So yeah yeah good opportunity for them to take their care that they're giving their patients which is great already but just to a, a, an even higher level so i wanted to to kind of jump back i think we touched on it a little bit but what are some of the, some of the um, barriers and challenges in society that limit access to um, to care um, I, I think the stigma really that goes along with mental health and mental illness and talking about it, um, you know, in some societies and cultures, it's not even something that's recognized as something that, that someone could have, you know, a mental illness and um, having the ability to talk about it freely, I think is important. And, you know, since, you know, I'm an, I'm an architect, um, yeah. try to find ways for the building and the design of the facilities to help break down that stigma is something that we try to do with a lot of our projects and that could manifest itself in a couple different ways. But, you know, even just by creating a, a public plaza on the corner 
um, where people start to engage with the building or the facility could have different kinds of activities happening out on the plaza that public and people passing by could be drawn into or um, facilities inside the building that could be a a benefit to the community, like a gymnasium or a pool that, you know, while it's not being used by the patients could be used by um, for swimming lessons or by a club basketball team. And, and it just draws public into the building. It, kind of reframes um, people's image in their head about what mental health facilities are by the fact that they're coming to the facilities and experiencing them in a, in a new way. And I think that's where the architecture tries to, you know, enable this conversation to happen is by just public awareness and public engagement. Yeah, I think that's really important to sort of start to blur the lines and dispel myths and whatnot. Yeah, because you, know? you, you can, you have the opportunity to integrate people that have this sort of different view of each other mm-hmm. or different view of one side. So it's a misunderstanding uh, is what it is. Yeah. So yeah. you can get that, that integration and sort of naturally organically kind of break that down. That's yeah. really cool. Exactly. What, um, what other, you talked a little bit about gyms and pools. What other trends are you, are you seeing uh, being implemented into to these Starbucks? Facilities? Is there Starbucks going into any of these at this point? I mean, they've infiltrated everything else. So. <laughs> Yeah, um, maybe for staff staff coffee, coffee shops. There you that. go. <laughs> um, let's see other trends. Um, we've we've talked a little bit about a couple other ones. You know, integration of nature. Yeah. Um, the move towards um, private bedrooms is a big one recently. Um, so you know, as opposed to like the asylum where they just had the big giant um, room and a bunch of beds. Yeah, more kind of like dorm style. I would think more like hospital style, right? So some of them you have like three or four beds in a room type of deal, right? With maybe yeah. a, a screen or something of that effect, right? It is how it used, a lot of them yeah. used to be that way, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. that makes sense. I, I mean, I, I could, because I, I see a lot of it just mirroring hospital builds, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Maybe without some of the, you know, other technical stuff, but I would, I would imagine it's very similar in that, or at least in past had been very similar to hospitals. Um, yeah, with, with the differences, you know, that I was talking about in the beginning. But, um, yeah, they used to be, especially when the asylums became overcrowded mm-hmm. um, because of a big population boom. Uh, I mean, there's photos of people on cots in corridors and, you know, really poor conditions. And so a little bit of a di- different approach these days is yeah, to try yeah. and create um, private private rooms with in-suite washrooms. So, you know, everyone has their own three-piece uh, toilet, shower room, space adjacent to their bedroom. And, you know, it really just helps with patient privacy, patient yeah. dig- dignity, dignity, patient satisfaction. Yeah. Um, you know, and even during the day when, you know, if they're maybe out in an activity space and they get a little a little too much commotion going on, the ability to go back to their bedroom, take a, t- a pause, a timeout, read a book, yeah. and come back out onto the, you know, therapeutic zone. It, that choice is also really something that is good for, for recovery too. Uh, for sure. That's good. Yeah, because I know hospitals are even struggling still with the having uh, individual bedroom or individual mm-hmm. rooms for for patients. Mm-hmm. Um, so I imagine you know being ambulatory, it's important to to have your your privacy and be able to escape, like you said. Yeah, um, and of course, it you know it's a, a balance then again there too with the funding and you know more square footage per person when you start doing single rooms and how you fund that construction and then larger buildings, more operational costs. But ultimately, you know, I think because of patient satisfaction and 
efficiencies of turning over that one room, you know, you're able to see more patients throughout the year. So hopefully there's a good balance um, cost-wise with that decision. Yeah. And we didn't talk about it yet, but um, we talked about scale, but we didn't talk about the different uh, types of patients. So um, from... What do we call it now? You mean like as far as like intensity or what? Uh, Like seniors to children. Yeah, I'm going to let you jump on that one, buddy. How that that can vary in the design approach. How are you handling that? Yeah. um, So I think the three kind of bigger patient populations would be child and adolescent, adults, and then geriatric. And with each one of them comes, you're right, their own design consideration. And, you know, we, we recently opened a facility for child and adolescents in Virginia. And really there it was about color, age appropriateness uh, in terms of scale and also, you know, um, graphic choice and graphics choice and stuff. And that it becomes a little bit tricky because how do you design a space that could be well received by an eight year old? And also well received by a you know fifteen year old. Yeah, they're into different things. They think different things are cool. And so you know, in order to give the facility the most flexibility to be able to accommodate you know different age ranges in there, we got to find the again. The, I'll use this word again: the right balance in terms of the overall aesthetic for those differing age groups and age ranges. Um, another thing with kids is they need to play. They need play space. They run around. They're aggressive with finishes and, you know, things, the building has to be very durable to, you know, let them, you know, play games inside and, and just be kids. Right. That's part of it. Do they get to color on the walls? (laughs) I think, um, (laughs) with like the, um, paint can do the drywall and blackboard stuff, you know, we could incorporate that. Yeah. Uh, A lot of sensory play, like you're starting to mention, that's really important. Getting them engaged in the environment is really important. Um, Enabling like lighting controls and, and lighting color controls and music controls for them is really important. So they feel like they have a, you know, giving them establishing a sense of control is really important. And, you know, also with the kids, like it's not just about the kid because most of the time, the majority of the time, the kid has a family member that's more engaged, I would say, than like in adult care. Um and the family member is also going through a really hard time, right? Yeah. Imagine being a parent and and having your kid go for an inpatient stay, overnight stays for you know a week at a time or something at a hospital. I mean, that's a really um, that's a really tough thing to go through. And so we also have to keep in mind that there's the family, there's the parents or whoever the caregiver is that are also coming into this facility and what their experience is like too. So kind of a something unique about a child and adolescent facility that. You know, while the family is important in adults, it's not as intense or as engaged, I guess, in the facility. Yeah. And then with the older population, um, more space for walking, uh, providing wider corridors with you know, any mobility issues, um, passing of wheelchairs, that kind of thing through the hallways. Yeah. Um, in integrating kind of wandering spaces, you know, they like to kind of get up, walk around if they can. Um try to decrease travel distances. So, you know, going from their bedroom to an activity room or lounge space, you know, the closer it is, the more likely it is that they'll, that they'll use it. And then even things like contrast between floor and walls, um, contrast of colors, that's important too, for clear visibility and 
you know, so that a surface appears flush and flat and stable versus any hard changes in color might also be perceived as change in depth too. And so that it can get a little tricky um, with the overall finishes of the facility. So each one of those three patient populations definitely has their own influence on um, the architecture and vice versa. And you touched on it earlier about uh, leaving like these identity markers um, I imagine that helps for the older population to, to be able to, for that wayfinding, um, yeah, for some that may have really memory mm-hmm. issues, um, to be able to help navigate. Yeah. And doing the graphics in, um, visual contrast, color contrast, and also text contrast too. So that, you know, if, if they're more, um, perceptive to graphics and or you know text like there's a always multiple ways to interpret it and so the level of the wayfinding too has a you know can be helpful to different populations as well yeah talked a lot about uh sort of the patient side and you mentioned a little bit about it caregivers uh what about the on-staff um or the the on-site staff um, are there any special considerations and, and things that you guys try to do in your approach? Um, yeah. So the staff often, you know, the staff are really the long-term occupants of the yeah. building. Yeah. I mean, you know, patients are there sometimes for a, a lengthy period of time, but they, they come and go. And the staff, you know, 10, 15, 20 years of wow. coming and working at the same facility, um, it's, it's a high-stress job. It's a high stress situation. And keeping in mind the staff experience is equally as important as considering the, the patient's experience. Um, making sure that they have areas of respite, that they have areas of outdoor access, um, that they, you know, even something as simple as the way they enter the unit can make a big difference in their day, kind of mental preparedness. So I've, I've visited a client once where the staff really the only way into the unit was right through the middle of all the activity. And, you know, you come into that space and all of a sudden um, someone sees you that wants to talk to you and now you're grabbed for that. And you haven't even, you know, taken your coat off or put your lunch in the fridge and, or checked your email or, you know, anything like that. And so providing a kind of back of house way for staff to come on, visit their office, go to their lounge, put their, you know, put their food away, check their email, mentally prepare, um, kind of, you know, get ready for the day and then have the choice on when to step out into the unit and, and kind of start engaging with um, their care and the, with the patients that that can make a huge difference right there. So yeah. that little nuance of how they come onto the unit can have a big impact on kind of staff stress levels. Yeah, um, I never thought about that, but no. I, when I worked in retail, this is not direct comparison, but working right. in retail and you walk in wearing whatever. Oh, you get you blitzed. Know, yeah, yeah. And everybody's asking, yeah. like, I haven't even got off my lunch yeah. break. I haven't no, yeah. Even, yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. I couldn't even imagine like that, that kind of setting every day. Yeah. So small things like that, um, you know, making sure that uh, they have a, this is, you know, this is something really silly, but making sure that they have a personal space for like a change of clothes and their purse or a, a different pair of shoes or their coats, you know, right on the unit so that they're not running all over the building when it's time to go because they just had a long day. They want to leave as quick as possible. So putting the locker rooms down at the other end of the facility, just, you know, these things can be really large, really complex, 400 feet long spaces. Um, you know, the more time you take away from them, doing those kinds of things, the more unhappy that the staff are going to be. So 
locate those where the staff do their job. So at the end of the day, they can just collect their belongings and go home. You know, even small things like that make a difference. Yeah, I've developed a new appreciation for nurses and mm-hmm. um, the stuff that they experience and, and have to deal with. And have so, a heart for. Yeah. You know, yeah. so take care of the staff. That's a yes. good that's a good uh, good tip. Going forward, do you, are you seeing any sort of, um, we talked about trends, uh, more current, or do you see anything sort of coming up that, that you guys are sort of exploring or thinking about introducing um, or that the industry is looking at or starting to consider? Mm-hmm. And the second part of that question is moving forward, what would be the one thing you would recommend uh, someone in this uh, space of a, a designer, um, you know, to consider when they're, when they're approaching this project type. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know if this is really industry trend or just me being hopeful or my own personal approach to it, but I would love to see behavioral health treatment spaces, inpatient included, um, outpatient included, integrated into an overall wellness facility for the community so that it's not always mental health is separate from a gym, separate from a community center, separate from a spiritual center, but that these things start to come together as overall health centers. Um, So, you know, people from different walks of life with different needs, different physical abilities, different um, mental health levels, all kind of come into the same shared facility. And I think, you know, going back to the idea of having the architecture decrease stigma, whether you're going there for a yoga class or you're going there for an outpatient mental health check-in with your clinician, it all happens in the same environment, same space. And I think that just would help bring awareness to it and make it more every day, you know, just part of general health. Um, So that's maybe my own wishful thinking, um, looking for the right client to have that project go forward. Um, you know, I'm sure uh, legally from a provider side standpoint, there's probably a whole bunch of issues with that that I'm not <laughs> aware of. But uh, yeah, that's kind of my my forward thinking aspirations for this field. Okay. Um, and then, yeah, as a designer, I think um, there's a lot of risk in these facilities, you know, and going back to this idea of safety, durability, anti-ligature environment, um, the fine details, like actually the the hinge on the door and the bolt in the, you know, in the hardware, or in the um, millwork type of thing make a huge difference. And so knowledge of those requirements and different finishes and products, uh, I think it's best if there's some experience in these building types um jumping into it new i think would be a bit of a challenge as a designer um because there are so many you know small little details that can make a big and you know sometimes unfortunate difference um in patient care so yeah i don't know but the amount of of help uh, the amount let's see the amount of difference i think that these types of spaces can make on a person's life i think is great Um, You know, you're helping people that are in crisis, you're helping people that are sometimes at their lowest of low and, and the ability that, you know, your design, your architecture, your space can help them in their recovery, so that they can live their best life. Um, You know, I think it's really rewarding work. Yeah. 
Thank you so much, Stephanie. We got one more uh, segment that we do. And this segment is called, What Was That Like? Okay. What was it like touring your first facility? Um, Intimidating is the word. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I also, to be fair, of course, had before doing this, had my own mental stigmas about this, um, my own stereotypes, my own perceptions. And um, by doing this work, you know, I think that I've, I've educate, been able to educate myself on these things, too. And um, the first facility that I actually toured was a forensic male facility, all male forensic facility. And so what, what um, does forensic facility mean, by the way? Forensic is people that have been engaged in some sort of law aspect of things. Um, So they're either there because they were found um, uh, not guilty by reasons of insanity, or they're there for mental restoration um, time where clinicians can work with them to see if they can bring them to a level where they would be able to stand trial for a crime they committed. Got it. Wow. So, you know, high, high level. That's intense um, for a first visit. This is your first visit? Yeah. Talk about jump on in, huh? Yeah. Um, And then, you know, you know, of course the being the only female in the facility, in the room at the time or walking through this all male facility with male security guards um, that added a whole other layer of intimidation and complexity to it. Sure. Um, God. Whose idea was it to have you visit that first? <laughs> I was just going to say. Was that your idea or is that an employer? Who scheduled this? Hopefully previous my... employer, ex-employer? Yeah. No. Uh, yeah. Just the nature of what needs to be done at the time That's and funny. where I was. Wow. Good for you. Yeah. I mean, good for you. Like, talk about challenge met, man. Damn. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. So that that was a, an eye opener and, um, you know set really like if you're going to do it you gotta you gotta jump jump right in and, and see what it's like so. i love that you, you definitely jumped it. in <laughs> yeah that one water was deep in that one that's yeah. for sure wow yeah good for you I, mean, right. I don't know if we'd like throw out like a shout out like i i am a big believer in mental health big big believer um you know it's, you're seeing it a lot more prevalent these days in sports and stuff like that where people are going to mm-hmm. sports psychologists and whatnot right and the idea and the premise behind all of that was you eat all the good things, you do all the things you're supposed to to build your body, but nobody's really been paying attention to the mind, right? And the mind's what controls all of it. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's kind of, it was like very taboo, I think, to talk about it at one point, but it's becoming more and more prevalent. And, um, you know, I would encourage anybody that's struggling with things to seek help with a therapist. I've done it in the past. I do it, you know, um, religiously, actually, um, because there's a lot going on in all of our minds. There's a lot of stressors on all of us, you know what I mean? And it's really good to just understand you can't always self-reflect on these types of things. It's really good for somebody who's trained to be able to tell you, look, you have a tendency to do this. So recognize it when that's occurring or whatever, just so you understand the feelings and why that is and all those types of things. Um, because we do we spend a lot of time on, you know, what we put in our bodies and potentially how we train our bodies, but you know, we need to pay attention to what controls those things. Yeah. And that's our mind. And it is the most mm-hmm. God given, unbelievably thing, you know, unbelievable thing there is. Yeah. And we need to honor that. So, um, Anyway, just a quick little shout out. And, yeah. uh, and, and yes, I do see a therapist. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And help us out there. Right. For, for sure. That oh, for sure. To. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Uh, this was, uh, a great conversation to yeah. have. Um, glad we can sort of highlight one mental health 
to what we can do to design to sort of uh, assist in that that arena of mental health. So um, thank you so much, Stephanie. Uh, really appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. Of course, that was great. Yeah, very good. Thanks. A huge thank you to Jason and Francis Shively for providing their insight and experiences. You can find out more information for Jason at cntrdcounseling.com. And thank you again to Stephanie Vito for sharing her expertise. You can find out more information on her and her company, Canon Design, at c-a-n-n-o-n-design.com. Thank you again for spending some time with us. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate or like it and leave a review. It helps others find us. So it's all up to you. If you really love what we're doing, sharing us with your friends is even better. If you stumbled upon the show, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss another episode. Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host Patrick McLaney, FAIA former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. From 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. 
Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK, the three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.